Welcome back to the Fordham IPLJ podcast. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. This week, part two of our discussion on theater law and Broadway producing. We're talking again with Daniel Wasser and Broadway producer Ken Davenport. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I highly recommend going back and listening to that first. Enjoy. Just wondering how the 2012 Jobs Act has changed the process of fundraising. Um, has it opened up the possibility of more crowdfunding, like using Kickstarter? What would you say the changes have been? I would say that my practice has seen very little impact. Now, my practice tends to be commercial, often Broadway types of productions, which are at the higher end, obviously cost-wise. So the equity-based crowdfunding that the JOBS Act permits limits the raise to a million dollars. Well, you're not going to be able to produce a Broadway show for a million dollars. So equity-based crowdfunding has not been of much interest to commercial producers. One could arguably finance a off-Broadway play or an off-off-Broadway play through equity-based crowdfunding. But you can also, and this is this precedes the Jobs Act, you had things like Kickstarter, which were basically operating on a donation-based model. And the idea was to try to interest people in your project and then not offer them an ownership interest in the project, but rather offer them a CD, offer them tickets, offer them a T-shirt, something that uh, is relatively small, but try to generate interest. The Jobs Act changed that or, or didn't change it. You can still do that kind of donation-based model, but the JOBS Act allowed for the equity-based model, but as I said, limited to a million dollars and therefore of limited utility. So if you're seeking you know, $250,000 in order to do an off-off-Broadway show, I would think that a lot of the producers would try to go with the traditional donation-based model rather than getting into the complications of the equity-based model, which is, I mean, is not without some complications. You know, crowdfunding is a term which is used for a variety of fundraising efforts these days. There's another element of the Jobs Act that created an oxymoron. So almost every Broadway production, the funding is done by what's known as a Rule 506 offering, which is a type of private offering generally limited to accredited investors. And its very name, it's a private offering. And yet what the Jobs Act allows is a publicized private offering. As long as every one of the investors is independently verified as being an accredited investor. So theoretically, you could go to the theater and you open up the playbill and there's an ad which says, Gee, you're at the theater. I bet you've always wanted to be a producer. How'd you like to be part of a Broadway show? Give me a call. I'll tell you about my new projects. 
and also it opens up the internet to that kind of uh, publicity. I had thought that was going to create tremendous interest in the Broadway community, but I've seen very little of it. So Broadway producers tend to continue to raise money through private offerings that are not publicized, perhaps in part because Broadway producing has gotten to be a bit of a close-knit community. People tend to know each other, and maybe they don't feel the need to reach out broadly to find new investors. So it really becomes a collaborative and meshed effort. So it's financially collaborative. Ownership, however, remains with the playwright. When you're dealing with a musical where you've got a book writer, a lyricist, and a composer, they will typically have their own collaboration agreement. Generally, they share things equally, but uh, there are some things that aren't shared, such as mechanical royalties for the music. So that's probably why, in connection with the musical, the book, music, and lyrics tend to separately copyright their ownership interests. And by the way, yes, it's theoretically possible that a producer could acquire a play as a work for hire. It would be extremely unusual. Probably the closest you get to something of that sort would be Disney, which is essentially producing its own property that it owns as the film studio. And so they work some interesting deals about uh, plays and because um, they feel that they've got a kind of different relationship to the work than the typical producer. Well, speaking to collaborations between the community, I was curious how ownership would usually be shared between producers, playwrights, composers, lyricists in terms of copyright or any trademark. So to answer this, let me draw a bit of a contrast between theater and motion pictures. In the motion picture world, the producer typically acquires ownership. The screenwriter writes a screenplay, receives a significant payment for that screenplay, may be promised some share of the profits from the movie, but we'll probably never see anything other than the initial payment because in the motion picture world, the definition of net profits is basically an artificial construct designed to ensure that there never are any net profit. Because the producer owns the screenplay, owns this work, the producer can do what the producer wants with it. So she can engage other writers to alter it, to add to it. The producer can cut it as he or she thinks is uh, appropriate. And the original screenplay writer has very little, if anything, to say about that. Contrast that with the theater world, where we often say that the playwright is king. In theater, all that the producer typically acquires is a license that allows the producer to present a particular play in a continuous run. And a continuous run is, of course, a defined term. But basically, what this means is that as long as you're producing the play 
through commercial productions, you can continue to produce the play. So, you know, if you have one of those rare plays or musicals that runs for years, the producer can maintain these rights. The producer's license covers more than Broadway. It allows the producer to expand to all of North America. It allows the producer typically options for certainly England, Australia, New Zealand, but often for the entire rest of the world, but as long as it's being produced. Once the producer is no longer producing the play in a continuous run, the rights revert to the playwright. The playwright has never relinquished ownership of the play. The playwright owns the play. So that's why in theater, the amount of money that's paid to the playwright up front is not that large compared to the motion picture world. Because money is made in theater when a play is running. Because the playwright receives royalties when the play is running. So when a movie is playing in the theater, the screenwriter doesn't get anything. When a play is playing in the theater, the playwright gets money. Well, in the ideal world, the playwright's getting money from a Broadway run. The playwright is getting money from a national tour. The playwright's getting money from the West End production. The playwright's getting money from merchandise. The playwright is getting money from a cast album. That's in the ideal world. Then the rights revert to the playwright, and now it belongs to the playwright, and the playwright can exploit all of the subsidiary rights in the play, including motion picture and television rights, stock and amateur rights. But because the producer has produced a successful production of the playwright's work, it's acknowledged that the producer has increased the value of the playwright's work. Consequently, now it's the producer who gets a financial participation in the playwright's future exploitation of what's called the subsidiary rights in the play. Along similar lines, there's the issue of marketing and domain name ownership, which Ken Davenport emphasized should be an important early game consideration when staging a new show. Here's Ken again. As soon as you have an idea for a show or a product or something, get the domain name right away. You just never know. And it doesn't happen as much. You know, cyber squatting was a big business for a while. So the moment something appeared on Playbill.com, like, oh, pen and paper clip the musical is in development, someone would buy pen and paper clip the musical.com, and then you'd be in big trouble and you'd be trying to get it back from them. Obviously, SEO has changed a lot, and the domain name doesn't mean what it used to mean. It was such a key part of what Google rewarded in terms of search organic rankings. Now it's more of an in-depth algorithm, so they can get beyond that. But I tell people, as soon as you have an idea, buy the domain. It's 12 bucks. What have been some of your favorite parts about practicing theater law? Any favorite shows you've been to? Practicing theater law has brought me into contact with just a whole bunch of really nice people. It's unusual to run into unpleasant people to work with. And fortunately, we're at a point where we don't work with people who we uh, uh, don't enjoy uh, working with. 
but you know, I enjoy the creativity. I enjoy the sincerity of the effort that goes uh, forward. My wife and I go to a tremendous amount of uh, theater. Not all of it is connected with uh, clients of ours. And my wife often comments that I have absolutely no judgment when it comes to my clients' shows, which I always think are fantastic, whereas I um, tend to be more critical of other shows. But it's a, uh, it's a fun practice, and... You know, we're trying to, we try to take a broad view, not just of what can go on the stage, but are there other avenues for uh, exploitation? And it uh, keeps life interesting. We're running out of time, so let me um, pick a few last uh, questions to ask you about. It would be interesting to find out what modern trends maybe you've noticed in theater, or what changes you've noticed over the past few years. Well, certainly we've noticed a great deal more use of technology, at least in terms of sets and you know, staging. So there's a lot more visual, audiovisual uh, work. I also think one tends to hear a lot more music accompanying dramatic plays than used to be the case. On the financing side of things, what we're seeing a lot of is what I would call the the co-producer phenomenon. So when you go to the theater and you look at the playbill, you see the title page, and above the name of the play, you'll see a whole bunch of names. Those are the producers of the play. But of those 10 or 15 or 20 names, it's generally only the first one or two or three who are the active producers who have actually organized the production, went out and acquired the rights, and have brought it uh, forward. All of those other names above the title tend to be major investors. And as part of their deal, in exchange for making a significant investment, because from the point of view of the lead producer, the lead producer who's trying to raise $10 million would be much happier getting 20 investors for $500,000 each than run around looking for a whole load of $50,000 investors. So it's not at all uncommon for a financial incentive to be given to a major investor that they will get not just the regular return, they'll get a little bit of an enhancement of their return, and the producer will give up a portion of the producer's return in order to induce these large investors to come on board. And what's been happening is that a lot of these large investors are folks who have organized their own group of accredited investors, so they're not necessarily writing a check for $500,000 or a million dollars, but they turn to five or 10 good friends and everybody comes together and puts up 50000 or $100,000 in order to create that investment uh, power. So we sometimes refer to those folks as bundlers. They're kind of bundling up investments. And we see a lot of that these days. Ken also spoke to his experiences with technological development and how it has changed the way new shows are produced. 
One of my favorite things is when people call me a pioneer because of technology. Because in any other industry but the theater, I'd be like 20 years behind. They'd laugh at me for some of the technology advances that I brought into the business. Look, I was a computer nerd when I was a kid. So I was the kid that, you know, we'd go to the mall and I'd run to Radio Shack and plant myself in front of a TRS-80 terminal, which you probably don't even know what that is. So it was like the first personal computer. So I was always a technology lover. So yeah, I just naturally wanted to apply technology to the theater and to bring our, our industry into the 21st century. We naturally lag behind. And a lot of people say we're so behind. Well, look, our audience is older. Our audience, average audience member is about 44 years old. So of course they don't respond. They're, you know, they're not on Snapchat. My mom is not on Snapchat, right? So they don't respond to some of this stuff. So as much as people like to beat up the theater for being a little behind, it's also because our audience is behind. You know, shows should not be spending thousands and thousands of dollars on Snapchat promotions. It'd be wasted media, right? But we can start to challenge our audiences a little bit and try to grab them and pull them into the 21st century, especially since the advertising specifically technology and advertising we can learn so much more we can track so much more we can be much more efficient with our advertising dollars when we go electronic finally we asked ken how recent trends in for television or streaming versions of shows has affected live theater i'm a big believer that the presentation of our shows in other platforms television online is just another tool in our marketing toolbox for not only the shows itself, but for Broadway in general. I've never been a believer that streaming performances would ever detract from the audience here. We now we know this. Look, whenever there's a movie released of a musical that's running on Broadway, the musical's box office grosses go up. So the same is true for streaming. I don't know what everyone's afraid of. Like, you put it out there, it goes up. It will benefit just from the sheer marketing of it all. So I'm a big believer that this is this platform, we need to do more of it. Again, it's a way for people all over the world to touch Broadway. The analogy I often give is that when I was a kid and my dad and I sat down to watch the Red Sox game, I remember looking at that big giant green wall in the back of Fenway Park and saying what's that oh that's the green monster and I remember thinking I want to go to that park and see what that's like in person I want to smell the Cracker Jack right and that's I think what will happen in the theater if we start using these these other platforms I believe that what great theater does is entertain, educate, and inspire. But the message of the piece of great theater doesn't show on the surface. Audiences don't even realize that the message is soaking in in some of the best theater that I've seen.
Fordham Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderators are Professors Mark Patterson and Joel Reidenberg. Our Volume 28 Editor-in-Chief is Alex Kirk. Our Managing Editor is Matt Hershkowitz. Special thanks to staff correspondent Lizzie Altman, and a huge thank you to Ken Davenport and Dan Wasser for being part of this episode. Additional thanks to Maximilian Kempf and Patrick Ho for their editorial and audio mixing contributions. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. If you liked what you heard, please rate us and give us a review. It lets us know how we're doing and really helps our visibility as we continue to grow year after year. For more information about Fordham IPLJ, please visit our website at www.fordhamiplj.org. You can follow us on Twitter at at FordhamIPLJ or on Facebook.com slash FordhamIPLJ. Additionally, you can support Fordham IPLJ and unlock exclusive bonus episodes by visiting Patreon.com slash FordhamIPLJ and becoming a patron for just $1. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.